This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Here we go again, ladies and gentlemen. This is the third episode of Underrepresented. This is a co-production between Hacker Valley Studio and ITSP Magazine. And in this episode, we have Ashley Tolbert and Kim Crawley. We talk about different types of diversity. We talk about finding your tribe and using that tribe in order to enhance your life, enhance your career. This is an amazing episode. Can't wait to get to it. If you like this and you like the stuff that we put out, make sure you check out our website, hackervalley.studio. And support us on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Hacker Valley Studio. Here's the episode. All right, here we are again, Underrepresented 3. It kind of sounds like a, a kung fu flick, right? Like the, the B, <laughs> B-level kung fu <laughs> Underrepresented 3. Back for more, you know? <laughs> Fast we're, and Furious 12. We're, we're, we're back. We're back yeah. and we're, we're, we're mad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, this is fantastic. I'm, I'm loving uh, that. You know, it took a much shorter time for us to get to three than we did to get to yeah. two. So it's because we put it on a calendar. That, yeah, exactly. Yeah, calendars use calendars. Cal- no calendar, it doesn't happen. <laughs> look, look how long my hair grew in between them. I know. <laughs> Very cool. So yeah, just quick introductions around. We'll start on the the Hacker Valley Studio side, and then we'll get around to ITSP and then our honorable guests. So yeah, Chris Cochran one of the co-hosts for Hacker Valley Studio. We do this episode with ITSP covering underrepresented groups and how we can actually get to equality across cybersecurity. Passing it over to you, Ron. Yes, sir. Ron Eddings here, also co-host of Hacker Valley Studio. Uh, love uncovering things like we're about to touch on underrepresented areas and technology, but also uncovering what's behind the human and the humans powering technology to begin with. Absolutely. Sean, take it. All right. Yeah, Sean Martin here, of course, editor-in-chief, co-host of ITSP Magazine's numerous columns and talk shows that Marco and I forged together. And yeah, thrilled, obviously, for for this particular episode that we work on with uh, partnership with Hacker Valley Studio, Chris and Ron. And uh, yeah, today, I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. I'll let you introduce yourself, Marco. But I think diversity... Well, it's going to be a lot about diversity and underrepresentation from a diversity perspective. And it's not always what you see, right? Um, Which I think is going to be uh, a very telling conversation today. So, Marco, take it. I I just uh, Zoom bomb. I was not supposed to be on this. (laughs) I know. I tried to uninvite you. No, ITSP Magazine. Claiming the host code or something. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just going to keep it very short. I mean, this is a conversation that overall wants to be positive, encouraging, and including people in the conversation, showing that there is people that are committed to help underrepresented people to come into the show, onto the, well, not only on this show, but actually on the, on the industry. And that if we don't tell them that there is an opportunity, they're not, they're not going to know it. So this is why we're here. And today's um, guests are Ashley and Kim, which will let them introduce themselves and, and know what they're going to bring to today's conversation. So let's start with Kim, and then we'll pass it to Ashley. I guess I should introduce myself first. I am, I've been a cybersecurity blogger uh, for 
over a decade now. Really what has given me a lot of exposure in this industry is working for the corporate blogs belonging to AT&T Cybersecurity and BlackBerry Silence and Benefy. I've worked for Sophos Naked Security. I've worked for Komodo. I've worked for a number of tech brands doing a combination of writing about cyber attack stories and writing about general non-time sensitive security issues, usually targeted to companies and enterprises. Yeah, and lots of I, cool stuff there. I love my job. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, I say to people, it's, I, I get paid to be a student. I get paid to learn. I do the kind of work that someone might be doing in a computer science program, but I'm getting paid for it. I'm very grateful for my job. And my job really plays to my talents. I am absolutely lousy at doing most things. I'm a terrible singer. Marco says that about me all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Lousy at stuff. I'm a really terrible dancer. No one sane would ever ask me to drive a car. (laughs) There are a few things that I am good at, and that's creative writing and understanding computer technology. So I literally found the one job that I'm best suited for. So I'm very lucky that way. All right. That sounds good to me. Ashley, how about you? Oh, wow. I resonate so much with what, a lot of what Kim just said. Also a creative writing fan. So love that. Yeah. I, so I've been in security for what, like six or seven years now. I started right out of grad school, actually. So I was sort of like a software purist. Like I just wanted to like do development. I sort of went to undergrad for computer science. And I always thought I would sort of like be a purist until I got thrown into security in grad school. And then started working at the DOE right out of grad school. And kind of landed in this sort of like DFIR land. I started off doing IR as a lot of SOC analysts start off. You're just trying to figure out what does it mean to be a security person. And then I sort of got more into forensics and spent four years at Slack, which is the Stanford Learning Accelerator doing that. Got a lot of insight into like what is security, what is security in the government and what does that mean? Uh, very interesting experience. And now I'm at Netflix. So work with uh, Chris is actually we're on the same team. Uh, still doing IR, crisis management, all the things that come with being a blue teamer. Still love development. Spent a lot of my time on the outside doing uh, front end, back end, fun things that I like to do in general. Also spend some time creative writing. So it's, it's great to, I, I love hearing security people talk about their creative hobbies, not just what we like to learn on the security side. Um, that's yeah. me in a nutshell. I also sit on the board for WISP, which is yeah. women's privacy. Yeah. <laughs> so diversity is near and dear to my heart. I started, one of my first talks I ever gave was for New America. And it was basically this idea around like, what is security and diversity. And that was when I first got into the industry. And I think that one, the way that started kind of painted my entire career. Obviously, like I became very invested in like, what does it mean to be, to have a diverse team and, and, and to think about diverse team members and security. But yeah, uh, that's telling me. I could ramble all day, but I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think you brought it in the right direction. We, we didn't need you to drive you, to drive you there. So I'm interested in, in you, both of you, uh, to know how diversity has played a role in Bring, coming into the industry and growing into the industry, connecting with everybody around you. So 
you know, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a neurodiverse person, and, and how that plays in who you are today. Oh, uh, so I can only speak about being female and being neurodivergent. It's really interesting because my big break, as far as doing my job is concerned, was when Joe Petit gave me a chance back around 2016 and let me write a series of interviews of women in cybersecurity. And that was for the Tripwire State of Security blog. That, I mean, I, I was writing about cybersecurity for years before, but that big break that Joe gave me is what turned what I do into a job that can like pay my bills and stuff. So I'm very lucky and I'm always very grateful toward Joe for giving me that opportunity. But my point is, at the time, I mean, still now, but at the time there was a real push to get more women working in computer security. And it was like a really great opportunity to, the, to do that interview series because I've met so many women in our industry in various different roles from like network admins to secure application developers to CISOs. And it was, it was great for networking too, quite honestly, because I got to talk to all these women. And then eventually I had an interview subject who identified as a non-binary femme. And they asked me, can I be a part of this too? And I said, sure. And so eventually the, we changed the title of the series to women and non-binary people in information security. The history of women in computing has highs and lows. One statistic that I read was around the time I was born in the early 80s, women made up to like maybe 30% plus of people in computer science programs. And the chart, the trajectory looked like it was only gonna go up. And then like by the 90s, the percentage of women studying computers, uh, computer science dipped again. And, and who knows why? A lot of the things that I hear is when women want to become mothers, they're told that they could miss out on potential job opportunities or they take maternal leaves. Sometimes women wouldn't get hired because the employer would assume that they would need to take a maternal leave at some point or wouldn't be as committed to their career as a man would be. I think the tide is gradually shifting now to be a lot better. I've seen a lot more women and non-binary people in our industry now. And there have also been really great initiatives in our industry, like the Diana Initiative, which was founded by a couple of my friends, including Cheryl Biswas. And so I see things improving now. I mean, it's slow and steady but I'm really optimistic. I, I would say probably at least 30 or so percent of the people I know in our industry are female. So it's looking pretty good to me now. Nice. Oh. Wow, that was amazing. So I think I can speak to sort of like the last like 10 year. I think I have a view of like what I've seen in the last like six or seven to 10, um, because I don't, I don't think I have a great view into like what it was like for that. And so I love that we have like these two different views on, on that. For me, diversity is how I started to feel connected to the security industry because it was the way that I started meeting a lot of people. What I mean by that is, I mentioned the New America article. I 
feel like when I first got to California in 2015, that was like the one way that I started to meet different people across security. And, and it was sort of in this like one year span of trying to sort of be this like voice for diversity that I started to meet people who were also interested in it to put together a presentation to give in DC. And in and, and doing that, I was able to sort of get a lot of people's perspective on diversity. I very much felt at the time that it was not a diverse place to work. And I sort of led that presentation from that lens because I was sort of going to these trainings and not really seeing, feeling like I, I was sort of in a, a, rep, a very representative space of diversity and 100% started to see this sort of shift over the next like three to four years. I think there were a lot of organizations who were putting out programs, Diana initiative, like Kim mentioned, WISP, you have four to three to four different organizations who are just contributing to women in security and privacy like well their their needs education mentoring so over the span of like three or four years you started to see these initiatives pop up and i was sort of navigating all of those i was in every single one of these organizations like anytime they pop up i was in their meetings anytime they would have trainings i would try to go so my perspective is that it has very much changed because i've been in that bubble of of, of trying to be in the space in the spaces that were leading to diversity and changing the view of cybersecurity. I think that has been my lens specifically because I've, I also work at WISP. I'm very much, and I'm, I'm very much in tune with, with trying to change who is like the face of security, I think. So that has 100%, that's been my lens on, on how, I, how I see the industry. In terms of how that's been important for me or how diversity has played a part in, in, in my security career, I 100% noticed that I started to very much feel like it wasn't a place for me or I very much felt like it was, it was often hard to navigate or to feel like I was very connected to it. And once I started going to these, going to conferences, uh, going to DEF CON and having people just like reach out to me because they noticed I was probably a little bit a little bit scared to walk in. One of the first, the first DEF CON I went to, someone came up to me and he was like, I can tell you're probably not feeling uh, your best. So let me, let me help you. Let me show you around. Let me show you how DEF CON works. And just that alone, I think, I think there are people who are very in tune to this. What is that? What is the idea of like creating a more diverse security mean? And, and I think I've, I've been very in tune with those people. So that has 100% shifted how confident I am in general in being a, a security person. Yeah, those yeah. are a lot of ramblings about how I feel about it. <laughs> oh, no, that, that's great. Thank you so much for, for sharing your stories. Uh, Kim, for you as well. Kim, you were mentioning some amazing things before we started recording the episode about the benefits of neurodiversity and then also how allies can support those that are neuro, neurodiverse. So could you go back to some of those points? And also yeah, maybe would... start with what does neurodiversity mean? Oh, yeah, that's, great. that's a great question, Ron. Neurodiversity is the concept that there are a diversity of different types of brains. And there are a lot of different conditions which can be disabling, but could possibly have upsides too. So the neurodiversity movement started with autism, but then eventually it broadened to include a lot of other conditions too. So like ADHD, dyslexia, mental health conditions, those all now fall under the neurodiversity banner. And it doesn't mean that, you know, having ADHD isn't problematic sometimes. It just means that 
you look at it from a more holistic perspective in that it's not a disease, it's a difference that requires some adaptation. Very nice. And how, how, did, how is bringing neurodiversity to your workplace, how has that changed your life? And, and what did that journey look like for you before there was a, a lot of neurodiversity that you've experienced? And what does that look like today with where you're at? I think, you know, I, I think there is ableism everywhere. Ableism is the, the prejudice against disabled people. Mm. So, I mean, obviously, just like there's sexism and racism and homophobia, homophobia everywhere, there is ableism everywhere, but all things being relative, our industry is probably more accepting of autistic people than many other industries. And it's partly because of the stereotype of the brilliant autistic computer node. Right. Yeah, and then one of the things I, I touched on as we kicked this off is the idea that we we hold some prejudice based prejudice uh, based on what we see, right? And oftentimes, well, uh, th- some of these things may present themselves by the way we act, but a lot of times they're hidden. We may be more silent, we may sit and watch more, or we may be more outgoing and, and more involved in different situations. And I, I often, as we talk about this topic many times, I often think everybody's on the spectrum, it's somewhere right? It's just a matter of where you fit and how that presents itself. So how do, how do we as a community and as an industry uh, not try to hide that, but recognize that that exists and embrace it? And, and maybe to, to Chris's uh, question, how by doing that can we benefit That's an excellent question, Sean. I I first want to address, because I'm not sure what you mean by a spectrum in this context. Everyone's brain is unique, whether you have specific conditions diagnosed or not. Are you referring to the autistic spectrum or just an overall spectrum of diversity? Uh, Autistic, but overall, I I think we all have, as you pointed out, uh, our brains are wired differently. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, and sometimes we we think of people that are good, good at math versus language or English language versus mathematics. You know that kind of different difference. types of learners. Yeah. yeah. How we engage with with others. Yeah. So, yeah. That that's because I want I want to make it clear that not everyone is on the autistic spectrum. But yeah, there is a spectrum of different types of brains, and each person's brain is unique. I. Th- now, my experience is probably very limited, so, but in my experience, I find the public school system is a lot more hostile toward neurodiversity than our industry is to adults. And it's kind of counterintuitive because there's this assumption that childhood is easy and you deal with the tough stuff once you're an adult and you have responsibilities and stuff but honestly i found that being an adult has made being autistic a lot easier than when i was a child like our public school systems whether in the united states or in canada or the uk or wherever are just not very good at helping kids who are neurodivergent 
I went through the entire public school system undiagnosed. I got really close to being diagnosed with autism and ADHD a few times, but I was failed by teachers and to some degree my parents every step of the way. And it wasn't until last year at the age of 35 that I spent like nearly three grand of my own money on a proper diagnosis hmm. and and i got it but there was a time when i couldn't afford to spend three thousand dollars on something like that so think of all the years i went getting no help at all and i like to to, to this day i don't really get any help aside from other people in the neurodiversity community yeah my experience of public school was absolutely brutal and I'm still emotionally traumatized by it mm. but my life as an adult for all the challenges for all the challenges with my career and paying my bills and looking after myself it's absolutely nothing compared to the kind of stress I was under as a child yeah. I'm very happy with my life now I you wish know, I could I'd like to jump on this because it really makes me think how the main problem, one of the main problems with diversity in a social context is the fact that humans don't deal very well with what is diverse. And that applies to everything, you know, from the way you look to the way you act to even your beliefs can be a big, a big problem for many people. They think like we are just comfortable being surrounded by people that look like us, that act like us, and that would be the most boring world you could ever live in. So bringing you from the example of, of the schools system into the existing working environment, I think is very important when we talk about, yeah, diversity, is important to talk about it, but the real problem is inclusion. So it's not just about getting diverse people on board, it's to create an environment that diverse people can prosper, not only as individual, but in a team. So I'm gonna pass this to Ashley maybe in, in to see like, you know, being part of this organization, feel like you're belonging somewhere, but also as you move into a corporate environment, what can be done to really makes people more comfortable and welcomed. Yeah, I've seen a lot of good examples on this. I appreciate the differentiation between inclusion and diversity because I think we've all heard that, the, that there is a difference. I'm glad that we've all heard it a lot. I think it's an important differentiation. It's kind of like you said, you can get, you can, you can have the best, the most diverse group of people, but if you don't, if you don't do the work to really create an inclusion workspace, then it doesn't really work well. So great examples, I think. I truly believe it starts with leadership. Like, I think your, your, your leaders have to sort of call out, number one, that, at, number one, that there is no, there's no hierarchy. Um, there's no sort of favoritism. There's no, there's no sort of differentiation between like anyone, any, any roles. Like that is very important. No one's like job is more important than others. No, one, no one's uh, culture, even, even if it's more represented, it's not more important than others. Great examples I've seen are very small, but they're like really important. Like I once heard about companies like during Ramadan, right? They like that, like, like creating like awareness of like different religions across a company. That's very important. It makes everyone feel like if I need to take off a day for because of um, what I choose to practice or what I choose to observe, 
then I don't want to feel that I am um, a different. I don't want to feel like because I because I choose to practice what I practice that I am at some way at a disadvantage. And and as a leader, what I w- would love to see or what I have uh, heard works really well is sort of creating an awareness across the company that number one, everyone, whatever you choose to practice is like okay, it, it's very important. I've seen examples of companies who, because even during Ramadan, you're not eating, they're, exen- they're essentially saving meals and then putting them in the fridge so that those who are practicing Ramadan can take them home after they leave work. That's a great example of just like creating awareness across the company that everyone has their own culture, their own beliefs, their own practices, and they're all important and that they're all welcome into the space. Other great examples too, right, are just like being an ally. I mean, I hate to sound like the cliche button, like diversity um, bingo, but that's very important. Like teaching everyone to be an ally in moments that are very important, that is is crucial because I've 100% been in situations where I, I think being being one of the minorities speaking about diversity sometimes feels cliche, so you don't do it. You're like, it it feels like I would be expected to call out certain situations that don't seem very welcoming or very inclusive. So to have someone else call it out for you or to be an ally in that moment is truly, truly important. So I really, really appreciate companies who speak allyship, who, who teach allyship, and who actually have like trainings on how to be a great ally. And, and I think to, to another end too, right, is I think if you have a diversity training at your company, that's already, I think you're already doing great work. If you have an IED program um, that's talking about inclusion, I think that is already uh, great work. I think some people are, are more serious about it than others and, and more aggressive about it than others, which I, I think it has their own sort of, sort of appetite for it. But yeah, I think those are great examples. I'm pretty sure if I sat here and, and thought a little better, I thought a little longer, I could come up with others. But yeah, making your environment feel inclusive, even if I am a minority, I can still feel very included. Or even if minority meaning anyone who, who, is, who, is, who is a minority. If, if you're a newer, one of the only neurodiverse people on your team, right? If I still feel included in the team, that's very different from just creating diversity on a team. And I, and I think that's, that comes with everyone doing the work and everyone like recognizing that diversity and making everyone feel included is important. And, you know, we can get into like small things that happen here and there, right? Even in conversation, there's ways to speak, feel more included. Yeah. Uh, asking me questions versus like, you know, projecting your own opinions on like th- those things are very small, but very important. So yeah, those are just some of my initial thoughts there. Yeah, one Those thing are I some, want, oh, sorry. Sorry. Go ahead, Kim. Those no, are some excellent points that Ashley has made, but I really want to drive home the point about allyship. The number one mistake that I see people who think they are allies to some marginalized group or another do is they think that they can speak for us. I don't have firsthand experience of racism, but I do have firsthand experience of ableism. And it's a big problem in the disability community, especially to some degree in the autistic community, people who are saying that they are speaking for the interests of autistic people or autistic kids, but they speak over us. It's not really a problem particular to our industry, but one of the biggest problems I can specifically mention about that is the support of abusive practices in the name of supposedly helping autistic kids, like uh, 
applied behavioral analysis, for instance. There's, it, and obviously we don't have time to talk about ABA, but in a nutshell, it's gay conversion therapy for autistic kids. And it, it leads a lot of kids to losing their sense of free will, and it causes post-traumatic stress disorder. And it also makes children more susceptible to sexual predators because they don't learn how to say no. Um, people can look that up if they're more interested in it. But as an autistic person, it frustrates me every single day, people who claim to represent the interests of autistic people when they are speaking over us. They're not listening to us at all. And it's probably, there's, that problem probably affects people in other, other marginalized communities as well. Yeah, I agree. I think there's, there's definitely a difference in speaking over versus like trying to speak in support of. And every situation is, is, is so different that noticing which one, which one is happening is like crucial, right? I could say in my experience, typically it's been for speaking in support of me when I didn't have a, uh, uh, the confidence to like speak for myself or when I felt like speaking up would actually make me, me seem uh, combative or defensive or, or seeking, like I'm calling out something that's not there. I think that's also one of the other sides of being sort of a marginalized, in a marginalized group. It's hard to delineate between when something is happening and when it's not. And you often, I think for me, and I'm just speaking for myself now, I often don't, I lean into the side of not wanting to call out things in hopes, in actually in fear that it is not happening and I will be seen as the person who's stirring up trouble or stirring up controversy. But often it probably happens more than I, 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 I realize. I'm also a hopeless optimistic person, so that's part of it too. So yeah, but great point again, for sure. Well, one thing I, I wanted to ask both of you, and you, you both touched on it in different ways, but it's the, the power of a su support system. So I wanted to ask, you know, I asked both of you, maybe starting with you, Ashley, the stuff that WISP does, how important is that support system? And, and what are some of the ways that those support systems enable people to do things that they want to do? Wow, yeah, 100%. I have so much to say about this. I think support systems allow us to do things we didn't even know we could do or wanted to do or knew were possible. There are a lot of organizations who sort of figure this out and they're trying to operationalize it. The community serves our interests in a way that, that we don't, we're not able to propel our, by ourselves. So what I've seen with WIS, for example, is number one, we ran this like DEF CON scholarship, right? And so with that, two years ago, it was the first time we did it. And we raised enough from sponsors to send 50 women to DEF CON. And so with that, those women were giving a community of people via Slack. And already you start to see the sharing of educational resources, the, the like creating C, uh, CTFs, the, the creating of like projects. And I think this is why I truly believe that community allows us to realize our strengths because we have help, because we have motivation. Like it is incredibly motivating to have a support system in these communities. I think that's why like creating a community for anything works. Creating a community for those with rare diseases 100% is, is helpful because number one, you're, you're all able to bond over experiencing the same issues while at the same time, 
giving each other space for motivation. So I think even anytime anyone asks me like how, how to get started in security, I always say like find your community, find your tribe people who are gonna who are gonna help you and motivate you every single day because you can have an idea but they're gonna have like three three different ways you can take that idea even if if i want to learn something i just want to find i'm going to find the person who who knows it way better than i do and ask them questions so i think community is just incredibly important i think with wisp i've seen it with with all of the women in groups i've seen it mm -hmm. and, and all of the the security all of the different security groups i mean you see it right like the minorities and security latinos and security like it's it's with every group, I think finding your tribe of people, even if it's not based on ethnicity or anything, it's like even having like an app set group, even having like your your IR group, like if, if I can bond with people in a in a way on something that I truly identify with, then that gives me so much more motivation. So yeah, I think it's really important in general. I think it's probably one of the, sole, the, the single most important things you can do to like improve or, or move farther. I mean, this is a community, so you all, you all kind of know that already. Yeah, wow. Well, it's multiple communities, right? And multiple yeah. groups and and the the AppSec crosses over into IRR, crosses over into WISP, which has privacy elements to it that brings a whole different group. Mm -hmm. And I think it's more than just the the, the camaraderie in those groups, but it's the, the voice that you have within those groups and across those groups. And and with that perhaps overcoming some blocks and, and, and issues with adversity as well. So I don't know, Kim, if I, when you, you mentioned you had your break with, with Joe and before that, I got a sense that you may have struggled. So how, how did you persevere? And maybe even before that, how did you get, get that starting point to begin to the point where you had that breakthrough? That's an excellent question. My, my life was very difficult back then. My life is pretty good now. Like I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm, I'm middle class. I've got a great job. I work for great companies. But before my big break, I was poor. I was poor. I was struggling. A combination of maybe an insufficient, but an existing Canadian social safety net and helpful ex-boyfriends who wouldn't let me live on the street. That, that really gave me the opportunity to keep doing what I was doing until I was able to provide for myself. I, I can't really think of any more effective explanation than that. We've all touched on some uh, really great kind of subtopics of in creating a more diverse space, not only in tech, but maybe just overall in like we touched on education a bit. One of the questions that I get asked all the time is how do I get started in cybersecurity? And my answer is always probably start with certs if you don't know where to start. You all sound like that you have tons of experience with kind of generating the conversations with these groups. What would you all tell someone that wants to get started with being spreading their voice and joining a, a focus group? Where where would be a good place to start for someone that hasn't dealt in that area before? Do you mean the group of people who are already in security but want to move into more of a focus or just moving into this, this sort of industry or community in general? Oh, so I, what I meant was for anyone that wants to kind of be uh, holding the flag of a topic in diversity. So maybe what would be a good strategy for someone, a woman to start kind of communicating with other women or 
other women that also kind of fall under another subgroup? Yeah, I think there's so many groups on Twitter, on, on Meetup, on, on any, if you were to Google like X insecurity, you'd probably get a hit on some type of group on some platform. So I would say start there. I would say if you really want to like move toward like holding this flag, as you say, like for a, a part or a, or subgroup in, a, in, in the name of diversity, then I think it's number one about getting in that community and then trying to drive forward some type of like initiatives for them, like trying to help that subgroup. Also just volunteer. Like I think, I think people are always willing to take volunteers and in every group I've been a part of, you can always volunteer. I went from being, I volunteered with WISP for a year and, you know, I'm, I was on the board in, in the next year. And I think that sort of speaks to how much like it, it really is like a truly a valuable issue that everyone's, everyone's willing to have people who want to help on board. So those would be my, my, my advice on how to get started there. I think was that the first organization that you joined and volunteered for? Was that the first I think so. Yeah, I think that was the first that I really volunteered for. Not just like I'll, I'll volunteer just to like hand out flyers at your conference. Oh, this is one I, I actually truly volunteered for. Yeah, I went to my first. I volunteered in 2016. That was my first in volunteer. Uh, first time I volunteered with them. But yeah, I think that was the first group. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. What about what about you, Kim? What was your starting point for kind of getting involved into specific focus groups? And what would you recommend for someone to get started? I think your advice, Ron, about people starting with trying to get some certs is a good idea a lot of the time. Probably start with CompTIA Security Plus and then look at maybe some vendor certifications and go from there. As long as you have the money to pay for the certification programs, if you do, that, that can be a very good investment. Um, I would say kind of related to what Ashley's been talking about, networking is really, really important. So a lot of the time it's not what you know, it's who you know. And all of the great work opportunities I've had in the past several years have all been through people seeing what I do and people knowing who I am. I haven't had a job interview for years and years and years, and I, I don't miss job interviews either. So, so I, I was a desktop support agent like a long time ago, like well over a decade ago. I let my certs expire. I used to have an A plus and a network plus and a security plus and an MSC, I know, Minesweeper Consultant, Solitaire Expert, I think, and whatnot. <laughs> I let them all expire because as I'm not really a practitioner, no one really expected me to keep up with those certifications. Like now, my CV is all based on my reputation. But if you are a practitioner, especially if you're a pen tester, like if you're a pen tester, you're getting CH. If you want to be a CISO, get your CISSP and so on and so forth. If you are a practitioner, it would be a very good idea. No guarantees, but it would be a worthy investment, definitely. I agree. I also think that a lot of these volunteer organizations help support you in getting certifications too. 
And I know people go back and forth on their thoughts on certs, but I think for certain marginalized groups, they actually speak volumes, like way more. Like if you can say, I have my CEH, I think it's, it's way more respected, or I think, it's, I think it gives you a lot more leverage versus just saying like, I can pen test versus like, I have a CEH. So I agree. So in the past episode, we had some representative of nonprofit organization that their job is to well, their job, their commitment is to go into the underrepresented communities and tell them there is an opportunity out there. You know, it's not just what you see around you in this limited vision that you have of the world, but we want to tell you that there are dreams out there and that you can, you can reach those dreams and maybe they, they do what they can to help. As there are organizations like WISP and there are organizations like, you know, Women in Society of Sabri Jitsu and Diana Initiative and so on. One of my questions is, it's kind of, it been kind of hard for me to actually find somebody as a nonprofit that is specialized in bringing neurodiverse people into the industry. I was wondering, Kim, do you, do you think in that side there is been enough done or is maybe something that we can work on to giving the opportunity to people that may be maybe a little less social push to put themselves out there and do something for them? Uh, so how can, how can we specifically attract neurodivergent people into yeah. our industry? Mm -hmm. I would say get involved with certain groups like the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, the Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network, Get involved with groups like that that are run by autistic people and say, hey, I'm a managed services provider or hey, I'm a web services provider and I want to give job opportunities to neurodivergent people. How can we combine our resources and make that happen? And yeah, so that's what I would recommend. Like, get, get in touch with those organizations and ask them for advice and ask them to refer possible job candidates. So there are groups that are quite active. I would specifically recommend groups that are run by autistic people. So the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. Yeah, we'll, we'll list some of these resources. Yeah, if you can send it to us, we'll put it with the episode for sure. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So, Sean, where are we going from yeah. here? What, what do you see the future? <laughs> and, and Chris well, the, and fu Donald. the future is uh, <clears throat> us and our peers and those that we haven't met yet, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. so I think it's, for me, it's about continued outreach and, and to Kim's point, in a way that isn't trying to speak on behalf of others but opening up a world to let them speak, find themselves and speak for themselves, right? And likely that comes with, with allyships and mentorships and partnerships and relationships and communities that, that we spoke to today and others that we haven't heard of yet. And that's, that's what this, for me, that's what this series of podcasts is all about, to yep. uncover what those are and, and hear those stories and bring, bring folks together that that can share how they have overcome adversity and, and dug out of being underrepresented and, and 
hopefully then give back and pay it back to others that, that were, were like them and perhaps all of us even, right? We all look and sound different and I'm sure we all have our own challenges that we faced. Not, not all the same, not all based on how we look or where we came from or we grew up financially or whatever, but we all have our own thing, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I think we all overcome some, some adversity at some level. And I think that's what makes us all connected. So for me, that's the future. It's, it's this group here and the others that we've not yet met. Nicely spoken. Yeah. Yeah. Also kudos on you all for, you know, putting this together and then reaching out to underrepresented, those who are underrepresented and having us on here to share our story. Yeah, I think, I think uh, quickly, and then I want Chris and Ronald to, to yeah. put their, their opinion, but this is exactly why we decided to do this. I remember on the first time we met together, we did the podcaster podcast. It was back in Las Vegas yeah. during the Con and Black Hat. And then the idea is, look, we have this platform. It may not be as big as others, but, you know, we're trying to grow it. Yeah. But really, again, I, I don't want to tell other people's story. To, to Kim point, I'm not qualified to tell that story. I'm qualified to tell my own story. Yeah. So all we can do is to bring people like you more and more on this platform and, and share what your feelings, what your experience has been. So I think that's Chris and Ronald that kind of like what we want to keep doing. Yeah. Uh, first, I just want to say thank you both for sharing your stories and sharing your wisdom. I, I definitely learned a lot in this conversation, though the future that I see, I'm a bit of a romantic, and the future I see is that people are going to look at this conversation, they're going to listen to this conversation, and they're going to find their tribe, someone that is out there feeling like they're by themselves, they're going to say, you know what, now is about time for me to reach out to somebody. And they're going to go out there and they're going to find their people and they're going to go on to do great things. Yeah. Um, I think that's the future. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree anymore. I, I know for me, I grew up in a very diverse area of Maryland and everyone in my school was of different ethnicities, different thought, different cultures. And I never really looked at it. I think the future is having those groups that support your interests and the things that you're passionate about, but realizing that everyone and everyone's included when you look at the topic of diversity. And it's really up to like what you were saying, Ashley, it's up to the leaders. And I think that this is a form for anyone that wants to be a leader in a conversation topic, anyone that wants to spread the diversity uh, conversation further and wider. I think that this is a great form for it, but I think that's ultimately the future of what we're going to see out of diversity and underrepresented. Excited to see how this, how this evolves. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Kim, one last word from you. You want to bring us home? Yeah. Thank you very much for inviting me onto the show. Ashley had a lot of like really great points as well. I, I just, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. And if anyone is interested in hiring my services, try to connect with me on Twitter. I'm at Kim underscore Crawley, C-R-A-W-L-E-Y. I'm always open to new business opportunities. I'm currently still working for AT&T and Blackberry Silent, but I've got room to do more work. So let's get in touch. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. All right, and with this, guys, girls, thank you very much. And 
we need to put the next episode on the calendar because today, uh, like we yeah, need to today, put it on the calendar today. <laughs> month from now, there'll be the next episode. We're not gonna let. Otherwise, who knows what Sean's hair is gonna look like? I know. I know. <laughs> right down, down my back. I'm sure. Thanks. Uh, you guys stay safe, stay, stay inspired, safe. and uh, yes, thank you, for, thank you all for being with us.